1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In just over two weeks' time, Germany goes to the polls. But for the first time in almost two decades, Angela Merkel's name will not be on the ballot.
1: Germany's darling Mutti, the mother of the country. They're all dwarves apart from Mutti, that's the German word for mum, that is her favourite nickname. The Merkelator, a ruthless colossus
2: who not only dominates every room but also the global arena.
1: Chancellor Merkel is no ordinary head of government, she is the Queen of Europe.
2: After 16 years at the heart of global politics, What do we know about the woman the Germans call Mutti, the mother of the nation, and who for many, over the last few years, came to be seen as the new leader of the free world?
3: I think there's quite a cuddly image of her among certainly liberal strands of opinion in Britain, and a sense that she is the kind of decent antithesis to the populist politics we've seen in parts of the last few years in Britain and certainly in America.
2: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, life after Mutti. How Angela Merkel shaped Germany and the world. On most days in the political season, Berliners can watch the same scene unfolding. The Chancellor, Angela Merkel, commuting to work.
3: So the um, axis of political power in modern Germany is a very underwhelming, large, open-plan square near the River Spree in central Berlin.
2: That's Oliver Moody, Berlin correspondent for The Times and The Sunday Times and longtime Merkel watcher.
3: And On one side, you've got the Reichstag building, which is now home to the German parliament, the Bundestag. And on the other side, you've got the chancellery, which is the single biggest central government building in the world. And that's where Merkel's offices are based. And at the start of the pandemic in March 2020, Angela Merkel was very, very worried about the chance that she would personally get infected with um, COVID-19. And she had a problem because she had to travel across this square to the Reichstag building to address parliament but because of her security clearance, she could only do that in one of her service cars. It's like a 500 metre drive. They've got um, a fleet of official cars from Audi and BMW and Volkswagen because they have to keep all of each of the big three German car manufacturers happy. And Merkel was wor- so worried about catching COVID from her driver or from one of her bodyguards that she spent an evening researching the exact patterns of airflow in each of these makes of car that she could take. And then in the end, she decided she wasn't happy with any of them. And so she ordered a black Volkswagen minibus just so that she could be transported this 500 metres across the square to go and talk to MPs.
2: I mean, Oliver, you've you've lived in Berlin for a number of years now. That's a, a very good example of, of a chancellor who's seen as very good on the detail, does an awful lot of background research and is very careful. You've just written an epic, an absolutely fascinating profile of her. What is it about her that makes her such a source of fascination?
3: When Angela Merkel became Chancellor of Germany in two thousand and five, I was sixteen years old, and now when she stands down this autumn, sixteen years later, I'll be thirty two. So she will have been in power for almost exactly half my life. She's sat through five British prime ministers, something like 12 Italian prime ministers, four American presidents. And for me personally, she has come to embody a certain kind of anti-populist, diligent, technocratic politics that has come to feel almost like one of the, the anchors of the modern world.
2: What do we know about her? as a person and her background. Take us back to Merkel, the early years.
3: Angela Merkel was born in West Germany, in Hamburg, but her father, a a very left-wing Protestant minister, felt it was his missionary duty to take his young family into what was then communist East Germany. They moved to a town a little bit to the northeast of Berlin called Templin, and her father there ran a centre caring for people with learning disabilities. And so Angela Merkel grew up under communism and under the East German form of communism, which was characterised partly by being a little bit more prosperous than the rest of the Eastern Bloc, but also by having an incredibly intrusive secret police force known as the Stasi.
2: How much would her life have revolved around Stasi, knowing that you were always observed. Also, how much information would she have had about the outside world?
3: The The really key tension is the tension between her father's role as a Protestant minister and therefore part of an organisation that was really mistrusted by the communist state in East Germany and regarded as a source of opposition. And then this sense that her life came with certain privileges and was in some ways sheltered from the brainwashing very doctrinal socialist world around it where she had access to books and to discussions that were probably a bit freer than she might have had elsewhere. But also that came with a level of really intense scrutiny. And her father was categorised secretly by the Stasi as an enemy of the state. And so I think that really taught her not only the value of having your own moral compass that is independent from the world around you, but also of keeping that to yourself.
2: But, as we now know, Angela Merkel's world was about to change. In November 1989, amid global gasps of astonishment, a stunning chain of events across the Eastern Bloc led overnight to the fall of the Berlin Wall, sparking wild celebrations on both sides
3: are here in the thousands, they are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout "Die the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. Something as you can see almost a party on. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history?
2: So what did the 35 year old Angela Merkel who was working as a chemist at the GDR's National Academy of Sciences in East Berlin at the time. What did she make of the seismic events unfolding before her?
3: She didn't like the GDR regime, even if she was never sort of really openly opposed to it. And when it fell, she was extremely calm about the whole thing. In a very Merkel-like fashion, she promptly went out to a sauna with her friend just as she did every Thursday evening and then sort of wandered back home Got a beer. And then a few hours after the sort of general rejoicing, once all of these, you know, these scenes you recognize from television of people flooding through the old border crossings, once that had sort of peaked later that evening, she sort of wandered over for a bit, had a look around, and then just came back and and had a good night's sleep and went to work again the next day.
2: How does she go from being, you know, a brilliant student, a great scientist living in East Germany to? A decade and a half later, the Chancellor of Germany, I mean, that's a meteoric rise. How how did she do it?
3: The story starts with her joining very short-lived, post-fall of the Berlin Wall, East German party, which, which promptly fell apart when it was revealed to have been absolutely riddled with Stasi agents. And then she joined the transitional government of East Germany as a sort of uh, spin doctor, basically, and got a reputation for being super competent, always on top of her brief, the person that the journalist would always go to and she was writing all of these articles with a really moving sense of faith in the Western capitalist, liberal democratic system. And then she joined um, the Christian Democratic Union, you know, the ruling party of West Germany, par excellence, one of the most dominant political parties in Europe since the Second World War. And very quickly she was identified as someone who was going places.
2: And she was. Within a year of the Berlin Wall crashing down, Merkel had become an MP and she'd also become a protégé of Helmut Kohl, the leader of the CDU and chancellor of the newly unified Germany. Now, it's said that he thought it was useful to have a token woman and a token East German to parade around. Is that
3: right? He called her his Mädchen, Cole's girl, and that was how she was known, very patronisingly. And I think, I think um, that led a lot of people, including Cole, to drastically underestimate how good she was at politics and how ruthless she was capable of being, because they thought she was only there thanks to Cole's patronage, rather than because she had got an opportunity from Cole and then seized it with both hands and, and t- used it very cleverly to build her own profile in the party.
2: He must have regretted that when, five years later, the CDU's leadership was engulfed in a giant scandal over illegal donations, and Angela Merkel spotted an opportunity.
3: Merkel, having been outside the ruling clique, was in the perfect position to be the person who says, this is unacceptable, this is destroying our party. And so she effectively knifed her old mentor in the back. She published an op-ed saying Kohl had to go. He had to withdraw from politics and give the party a chance to um, renew itself. And that was it. That was that was basically the end of Kohl's career in frontline politics and the moment when Merkel really became the power to be reckoned with in the German opposition.
2: That'll teach him to underestimate his girl. <laughs> <laughs> As she became Chancellor back in 2005, I mean, um, in a way, looking back now, you know, you can usually judge leadership by the way it confronts a crisis. So we wanted to sort of try to understand her character, her priorities and what drives her by looking at a series of the crises that she's faced, starting about five years later with the Eurozone financial crisis. Talk me through that. I mean, take us back to that period around 2009, 2010, when it felt like every week another European country, whether it was Portugal or Ireland or Greece, seemed to be in real trouble. And in Greece in particular, protests took over the country and it looked like the European Union was in real trouble. Does Angela Merkel, in the middle of all of this, how does she respond?
3: The global financial crisis, the credit crunch, began to mutate into a sovereign debt crisis in Europe. And some of the Eurozone members, particularly in the South, obviously Greece, but also Italy, Spain, Portugal, had borrowed very heavily and run large fiscal deficits. And suddenly, the markets' faith in their ability to repay that money fell away. And this posed a really existential problem for the Eurozone countries, including Germany, because they had to choose between either bailing these countries out or letting the Euro potentially unravel. The political climate, particularly within Merkel's centre-right party at the time, was very much in favour of letting the markets rip on Greece, especially, even if that meant that Greece had to leave the euro. But in the end, Merkel ended up driving a series of bailout packages that kept Greece in the euro. So she effectively chose to maintain the stability of the eurozone, but at a massive cost. And it ended up ultimately stabilising the eurozone. No countries had to leave. Greece stayed in. The single currency held together, but caused a huge amount of damage to the Greek public sector, and to other countries that had to embrace austerity as a result of these rules. And Germany ended up doing very well out of it, I think. It actually made a small profit once the loans had been repaid. And the general sense is that from a purely national perspective, Merkel played the crisis very well, but that Germany kept the single currency together very much at its neighbour's cost.
2: That's ironic because it did feel like actually European unity was her priority, even if that's not really how it's worked out.
3: I think personally, Merkel has a very strong sense of the European Union and the European integrative project as quite a fragile, precious, historical anomaly against a backdrop of chaos and conflict. And it's something she regards as Probably a lot more vulnerable than most people believe and that needs to be actively held together. I don't think many other people in her party saw it that way, certainly at the time.
2: For most global leaders, a crisis of that scale comes along once while you're in office. But when you're Chancellor for 16 years, the crises just keep on coming. We'll have more in just a moment. But first... Hi. I'm Emily Dugan, Social Affairs Correspondent at The Sunday Times. It's you, listeners and subscribers, who enable me to investigate. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. as the crisis in the eurozone was just subsiding in 2015 trouble was brewing elsewhere the brutal war in syria may have seemed a long way away from berlin but the fallout was soon to reach the borders of europe as hundreds of thousands of refugees arrived in search of a safer more secure life the influx put a severe strain on infrastructure and forced some difficult decisions on Europe's leaders. But Angela Merkel surprised everyone by taking a very different and controversial approach. The welcome couldn't have been warmer. For refugees who'd been desperate to reach Germany, some joining family members already there, the long journey was finally over. Chancellor Merkel has made their dream possible. The dream of living safely away from the bloodshed of a civil war. The dream of a fresh start.
3: The folk memory of the migration crisis and Merkel's response to it has become a bit distorted in hindsight. There tends to be this idea that there was one moment when there was this great flood of refugees and Merkel opened the borders and let them all come rushing into Germany. It was actually a lot more gradual and complicated and messy than that. At the time... Europe's rules for handling migration and asylum were organised under something called the Dublin Agreement, whereby migrants entering the European Union were obliged to apply for asylum in the first country that registered them. And what happened as the numbers of people coming into Europe rose over the course of uh, 2015 was that this agreement completely broke down. And by August 2015, there was a very large buildup of, of refugees in Hungary, which has a very nationalist government that is not very friendly to non-European migration. And these migrants were in a very bad condition. Lots of them were camped out in the Central Railway Station in Budapest. So it was obviously a, a very concentrated humanitarian crisis. And then they started walking up the motorway in 31, 32 degree summer heat, with no water uh, and all these cars driving past them, with Germany as their destination. The German government made two decisions. The first was that it would start taking migrants from Syria, irrespective of the Dublin Agreement, i.e. basically completely opening its borders to Syrians. And then secondly, that it would facilitate the entry of these refugees who are coming up the motorway into Germany. And those two gestures really committed Merkel to take quite unilaterally and alone in Europe a very welcoming course towards the migrants in that autumn, in September.
2: I mean, I remember covering the crisis and travelling with a Syrian family along exactly that route. It wasn't fun. And along the way, every Syrian you came across would talk about Merkel, would talk about Germany as as the end destination and the kindness of Merkel. There was a real moment of pride that Germany was doing this. It was also very clever in sort of presenting an economic case for bringing them in by talking about having an ageing population. And these were young workers who would come and help their economy was that a convincing argument?
3: In hindsight, I think it is the strongest argument. I mean, Germany very clearly does need all the young workers that it can get. And as the people who've come to Germany since 2015 are integrated into the workforce and into German society, they'll be a really valuable source of labour. But at the time, it was much more of a humanitarian impulse, I think. Build, the German equivalent of the sun, ran refugees welcome banners on its front pages, and all the opinion polls suggested that a majority of the German public felt she'd done the right thing. That shifted within a few months, really. It was already shifting before Christmas as this sort of euphoria began to wear off. And then there were a string of sexual harassment incidents that New Year's Eve, where it looked as though the police had been reluctant to report them and had then been reluctant to disclosed that in a large number of cases, the suspects were migrants. And so the impression got around that this had been sort of covered up out of political correctness. And ever since then, the polls have suggested that a majority of the German public feels that taking in so many people was the wrong thing to do.
2: I remember being there around Christmas and walking around, you'd suddenly start seeing posters on lampposts, which were anti merkel and anti-refugees, which I'd never really seen before. I mean, how much did this hit her personally and her popularity?
3: It dipped for a time. The biggest political damage it did was actually a few years later when it finished off her career. So if you go forward three summers to 2018, the AFD, the right-wing populist party, which had really gained a huge amount of momentum as a result of the resentment Merkel's migration policies had stirred up, started doing very well in a string of regional elections. And there was just local election after local election where Merkel's party, the CDU, was getting hammered and recording worst results it had had in decades, and the AFD seemed to be rising inexorably in the polls to something like 20%. After a while, the pressure just got too much and Merkel announced after one election result that she was going to retire. Whether she has any regrets about her actions during the migration crisis, she's kept it very closely to her chest. But the people I've interviewed about it, who were in Merkel's cabinet at the time, had the impression that she had a very strong humanitarian impulse, that she was convinced that it was morally the right thing to do. And I think that that conviction is unlikely to have been in any way diminished by the political climate.
2: You've said earlier that she was determined to try to keep Europe together. It's a project that's very close to her heart. How did Brexit play out for
3: her? There are two stages to the Brexit process and the first is before the referendum when David Cameron announced that he was going to go to Brussels and come back with a new settlement on Britain's status within the European Union and he would put it to the British people in a referendum.
1: Now tonight here in Brussels we're going to have a conversation dedicated to Britain's renegotiation of its position in Europe. We're not pushing for a deal tonight but we're pushing for real momentum
3: so that we can get this deal done which really threw the spotlight onto Merkel, who certainly at the time was the preeminent political leader in Europe. And had she been in a position or wanted indeed to give Cameron what he was asking for, he would have got it. What happened was that Cameron came with this list of demands, including a emergency break on immigration, precisely in the middle of all of these really painful, tortuous negotiations about immigration during the migration crisis. The timing was um, absolutely dreadful and the idea that Merkel would give Britain special treatment so that Cameron could resolve what Merkel thought of as an essentially domestic political problem was pretty ludicrous.
1: I've been told many times during the last few days that there are very special expectations of my speech here today. Supposedly, or so I have heard, some expect my speech to pave the way for a fundamental reform of the European architecture, which will satisfy all kinds of alleged or actual British wishes. I'm afraid they are in for a disappointment.
3: Westminster just misjudged the mood in Europe, misjudged what was politically possible, and misjudged what Merkel could do, even if she wanted to. In
2: recent times, in the last year or so, Germany, like the rest of the world, has been rocked by another crisis, Covid, and she seems to be faring better. How did her leadership and also her background as a scientist, how did it help at the start
3: of the crisis? Germany clearly had, in relative terms, a pretty good first wave. How much of that was down to Merkel's leadership rather than structural factors is debasable, but she did move relatively quickly to introduce a fairly hard lockdown. She acted pretty quickly. And by the end of the first wave, Germany had had fewer than 10,000 deaths. Her communication was also very good. She'd go on television and do these almost sort of fireside chat-style speeches, where she'd talk about what the R-number was and why we had to pay attention to it, or she'd explain exponential growth.
1: The curve is geworden.
3: And those clips would go viral with English subtitles because people in Britain and the US felt that there was such a good sort of rational, calm way of explaining what was going on.
2: But as the crisis unfolded, there was also a lot of criticism over Merkel's handling of Germany's vaccine programme, particularly after she handed over responsibility to Brussels for an EU-wide scheme, which got off to a slow start.
3: What she doesn't get credit for is the fact that Germany insisted on ordering 400 million doses of the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine, which actually turned out not only to be the first one that was available, but also to be the most effective. What I think she can be held responsible for is what was going on in Germany in the second half of last year and the first half of this year, which was that the country was incredibly slow to respond to the second and third waves and introduced lockdowns with great reluctance very late on. And its death toll has gone up ninefold since the first wave as a result of those delays.
2: Has she been blamed for that?
3: She has. Although Merkel was very much a Cassandra figure in that she saw both the second and the third wave coming. She made a lot of public appearances warning of the danger, but she ran up against the German federal system under which she doesn't actually really have any power over lockdown. That's all in the hands of the state governments, a bit like it would be in the US. And they were on the whole pretty reluctant to restrict the lives of their people. And so we just went through this increasingly farcical circus of meetings where she was trying to bang heads together and get them to agree on Nationally standard lockdowns, none of them would, and then eventually they got around to it. And it was really unedifying, and it really undermined Germany's sense of itself as a country that is well-governed. And Merkel looked so sort of sidelined in all this.
2: Those tensions came to a head when after a fractious late-night meeting between the Chancellor and her state premiers, Merkel announced a harsh, snap lockdown over Easter, only to backtrack a day later and issue an unprecedented apology on national TV.
1: A mistake
2: must be acknowledged as such, and above all, it must be corrected as soon as possible. At the same time, I'm well aware that this entire situation is causing added uncertainty. I deeply regret this and I ask all citizens to forgive me.
3: What was striking was the speed with which people across the political spectrum expressed their respect for Merkel. Because it was obvious that she wasn't solely or even primarily responsible and then gave her the political leverage that she needed to force through the national lockdowns. I think her popularity ratings have since then been back up to near record levels, something like 60 or 70% still, which is um, absolutely unheard of in most Western countries.
2: I mean, that is remarkable. 16 years in, very few political careers end on such a high.
3: Exactly. She's possibly the only Western leader in my lifetime to have been missed by the public before she'd even left office.
2: And what have, we, what have you learnt about her as a character through, through looking at this? I mean, um, she seems so unknowable. W- what, is, what is she like? What drives her? What, what really matters to her?
3: I think I've learned two things. One of them is how ruthless she can be. I think there's quite a cuddly image of her among certainly liberal strands of opinion in Britain and a sense that she is the kind of decent antithesis to the populist politics we've seen in parts of the last few years in Britain and certainly in America. And actually, she does lie occasionally. She can be quite cynical. She lied, for example, about standing down. She said a couple of weeks earlier, very explicitly, that she wasn't going to and then she did. I mean, it, it wasn't a giant lie. It wasn't 350 million a week on a bus. But she uses the tactics and the sort of backroom instruments of politics, just as much as any other successful Western leader who's survived in the job for a long time. The other thing that I've learned about her as a person is that she's often accused of being non-ideological. And by British standards, she kind of is. But that's not to say she doesn't have a set of beliefs at her core that drive her. Everyone I've spoken to That knows her, says she does have a very strong humanitarian moral compass, that she is quite influenced by her Christian upbringing, and that also this way she venerated freedom growing up in a a communist quasi-dictatorship has also very strongly shaped her sense of how politics should be done.
2: And what next for Angela Merkel? I mean, she's only 67. Is there more... In terms of a career or is this retirement now?
3: There has been perennial speculation over the past few years that she is lining up some retirement job on the international stage. So it could be UN Secretary General or something, head of President of the World Bank, head of NATO, <laughs> that kind of thing. And these, these rumours do the rounds and none of them is particularly more convincing than the others. She certainly has a lot of interests outside politics. She reads a great deal. She likes walking. But it is hard to imagine her being satisfied with just sort of fading away into total obscurity. <laughs>
2: been listening to stories of our times a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of the times and the sunday times with me manveen rana and my guest berlin correspondent for the times and the sunday times oliver moody you can read all of oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print the producer today was chris wade the executive producer is asia fuchs and sound design was by david crackles if you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line. You can email us at storiesofourtimes at the times.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Hold up?